Hi, Tellers. Today we are speaking with Dr. Samuel Ebenedion about the COVID-19 virus. You do not want to miss this. Enjoy. So we are so <laughs> excited to have Dr. Ebenedion today to talk about coronavirus and to ask him some questions and get his viewpoint and perspective if you would just give us a little bit of your background and how you got started in the medical field and um, just tell us a little bit about yourself. Okay. And what I would say is you can actually call me Dr. Iggy. So at work, some nurses who can't pronounce my name, they call me Dr. Iggy. So Dr. Iggy is fine. <laughs> uh, so yeah, about my background. Well, so I, I was born in Nigeria. That's where I grew up. Uh, I, I, you know, went to school there, middle school, high school, got interested in the medical field. It's a long story, but my dad bought me a book when I was in middle school by Ben Carson mm. on the gifted hands. Uh, that was an autobiography, mm -hmm. Ben Carson. And I read the book. I was so fascinated by his story. And I said, I wanted to be a neurosurgeon. I was eight years old at the time. And so my, my, life moving forward was geared towards that. And so I graduated high school actually in Nigeria at the age of 13, got into medical school. I was actually in medical school at 14. I did one semester in medical school in Nigeria. And I told my parents, I don't think I want to be here. I didn't enjoy the, uh, I didn't enjoy the system. I didn't think the learning to me at that age, which is weird, but I just didn't think the learning was optimal for myself. And so I told my parents I would like to train somewhere else, likely North America. And that's where the journey kind of began. I stayed at home exploring options to go to the United States uh, for about a year. And then Canada opened up. I ended up moving to Canada. I was 15 when I moved. And when I got to Canada, long story short, I did high school again in Canada for one year because I said I was too young to start college. And then <laughs> got my college degree in Canada. After my college degree, figured out I did a health science, integrated sciences minor. And I figured out you cannot go to medical school at the time in Canada if you're not Canadian. Hmm. Because there's only so few medical hmm. schools in the country. And so, again, I ended up moving. An opportunity opened up in an American medical school, which is where I went to, an island called Nevis. I went to an American school there. So you do two years of your basic science work on the island. And then you a lot of two years of clinical work. You do it in the States or in the country. And so I did that, ended up in Shreveport. I did my family medicine rotation here. I enjoyed the city. I enjoyed the community. I thought people in Louisiana were very friendly. And so I was like, you know, this is a place that I could see myself living for a while. Um, and so, you know, just God opened up the door. I did my residency here, and now I'm doing gastroenterology. Uh, it's a whole conversation, but <laughs> neurosurgery just basically fell out the window when I realized that 
I sincerely wanted to do medicine and I enjoyed bedside rapport with patients. I didn't enjoy the OR as much. Mm. And so I just kind of moved a medical, a medical career goal instead of a surgical Mm -hmm. career goal. And so, yeah, so that the journey has been, it's been a very interesting one to say the list. And it's, uh, it's been a lot of curves and a lot of turns, a lot of bumps on the road. But so right currently, I'm, I'm, I'm a gastroenterology fellow here at LSU Shreveport in Louisiana. Mm-hmm. So I think that's a long kind of answer to the question, <laughs> but that's that's a bit of who I am and what I do. No, that that's perfect. We thank you for that background. It's fascinating. I feel like we could have a series mm-hmm. just on <laughs> Each step you took to get yeah. here. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. And all the challenges. And what kept you staying. Yeah, like what kept you focused on it with all the the stops, you know? You're saying just from Nigeria or at what point of the journey you're talking about? Well, because you're saying that you went, that it didn't really work out there. And then when you went to Canada, it didn't really work out there. And so, you know, just yeah. having to move each time, like what kept you focused to say, I'm going to complete this yeah. and become a doctor. Yeah. So nobody in my family actually is in the medical field. My parents are not physicians. And so I didn't have a model of what I was pursuing. Uh, I would say what kept me, focused was I just had this passion for medicine. I knew that there was nothing else I saw myself doing outside of medicine. I had opportunities when I was in college to go into business. I was actually recruited uh, in my sophomore year of college to join a pretty thriving railway business in Canada. And I was offered big money at the time for, you know, a teenager because I was a teenager back then. And it's crazy looking back, I turned that offer down so quickly because I knew for myself, (laughs) the money wasn't my motivation. I sincerely knew that my life purpose was to be a doctor, was to be a physician, was to serve, was to help people. And I was committed to that. So I didn't necessarily see any alternate pathway it was just one path. And so understanding that I had no options, it mm-hmm. was option one and no mm-hmm. other option. I would say that was probably one of the most uh, important things that kept me focused. And, you know, secondly, uh, which is to me, I guess, the most important, in all honesty, is my faith. Uh, just you know, knowing that God had opened the door, as much as I tell the story of all the, all the turns and all the bumps on the road, God really was my rock. I mean, Jesus really was my source of joy, source of strength, source of mentorship. You know, he really was the one I leaned on through this journey because it wasn't easy. Like I said, you know, especially mm-hmm. going through this, navigating it without my family. I mean, my family basically were watching me navigate this and they keep asking me questions. So what are you doing now? What step are you in now? And I had to always explain to them what part of the journey I was in because they didn't even understand. 
but just having that father mm. who understood, you know, that my heavenly father and just knew he has an end for me and he has a path for me, uh, that definitely, I would say, made the journey worthwhile. That's for sure. That's a really good foundation, I think, for us to shift gears into talking about the coronavirus, because anything that you share, it's going to come from that same place, I think, right, of you just wanting mm-hmm. to help people as a as a physician, as a doctor. You don't want to hurt someone. You don't yeah. want to give misinformation. So I think that whatever you share in answering these questions is going to come from that same place. Of course. What do you want to know? I tell you what I what I believe I know so awesome. far about the virus. Okay. <laughs> so when did you first hear about the coronavirus? Do you remember like when it started to kind of enter into your world? Well, that's a good are? question. We've always known about the coronavirus. So coronavirus, uh, the coronaviridae, it's a family of viruses. So if you go back to biology, you have kingdom, phyla, class. Uh, you know, you just keep going down that system. Uh, the family of viruses, uh, of this particular virus is, you know, the coronaviridae family, the coronaviruses. And even going all the way down to the genus, uh, coronavirus has always been known to us uh, in the medical field. It's always been a common cold. However, mm. this particular strain, this particular species, uh, which is the SARS-CoV-2, we only, I personally only found out about it when it hit Wuhan, China late last year. And so, mm. well, the answer to the question would be coronavirus has always existed. We've always known the virus. However, this particular species is new. And so we are having to learn about mm. the virus on the fly. So we have about a year's information on the virus. Uh, we know the family of viruses. Wow. However, this particular strain is new. And so what we know so far is what's been revealed so far. Mm-hmm. Is, it, um, is it common for viruses to, to f- mutate into new strains or is this unusual? So that's a good question. Uh, this is not unusual. So you can have different species of viruses reveal themselves over time. And Mm. so this is not unusual. So for instance, even the flu virus every year, yes, it is the same species, but it's not the same exact virus that it was Mm. the prior year. That's why the vaccination is different. And that's why you have to get revaccinated to build immunity uh, against the virus, if that makes any sense. So this particular species is new. Mm-hmm. And so we have to see how it pans out in terms of, is it going to be like the flu that every year it's a different strain of the species? Uh, is it going to be a seasonal thing that we're going to have to deal with? Or is this just something that it's going to be a one-time thing and we're probably going to have a historical knowledge of it. Like, oh, we used to deal with mm-hmm. the coronavirus, uh, the SARS-CoV-2, mm-hmm. but it's not an entity anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, like we know when, when we talk about, so there was a prior virus actually 
which is also a coronavirus species that affected the world right about 2002 to 2004, around that time period. It was called the SARS virus. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. I remember so, yeah. that. So, yeah. So, it is the same genus, the same uh, mm-hmm. belonging that this current COVID-19 uh, virus belongs to. However, this is a different species. So, again, that was a virus that we dealt with, but we don't deal with it anymore. Uh and so the question is, is this going to be similar or is this going to be mm-hmm. seasonal like the flu where we have to mm-hmm. deal with it, you know, just ever so often annually? Can you talk to us about how it's different this time? Like, how is it different from the flu or the common cold? Yeah, so that's a good question. Uh, well, I think the main concern is it's highly infectious. So as we all know, we're dealing with a pandemic. And, you know, when we dealt with the flu for the first time, it was a pandemic, you know, in 1918. And that lasted for a while, I think about two years. And we had to deal with various waves of the the virus at the time. And so this, at this time, the big thing that we've seen is, so the common cold, number one, it's something that we deal with often. So you have different types of viruses that cause the common cold. Coronavirus is one of them. The regular coronavirus, if I would use that, that word. It's not, it's not highly infectious. So you can have it and you're going to recover. And you might not even spread it to your family members or your coworkers. You don't have to take time off work if you don't feel bad. It's something that your body just you know, develops immunity to and you overcome it. That's the common cold. Mm -hmm. However, this virus is very different. So what we're learning, like I said, so far we have about a year's worth of information on the virus because it's a new species. We're seeing that number one is highly infectious. Uh, You know, in the US currently is affected, I believe close to 14 million Americans at at this time. Mm -hmm. And we're also seeing that it also spreads, you know, pretty quickly. And, and we've seen the rampant spread across the world. Mm. And we've also seen uh, a pretty impressive mortality rate. Now, that's a different subject. Uh, pretty impressive, I would say, meaning not like we see with the common cold. People don't die from the common cold mm-hmm. like we're seeing with this particular species. So that's why I say it's pretty impressive. It's, it's still not alarming but it's still concerning i think it's about two percent when you talk about the mortality rate of the virus Mm. so it's it's something that we need to be concerned about and so the difference i would say is you know the fact that it's highly infectious we're still learning about it we keep learning new things every day so the cdc said it spreads uh by droplets uh meaning you know if you are within a certain feet from somebody who has the virus, uh, the virus can spread, you know, in the air and you can be affected. And that's one of the reasons we're being told to practice social distancing up to three to six feet apart, mm-hmm. wear masks to the best of your ability, uh, limit, you know, body to body contact and things of that sort. 
uh, because we're learning the mode of transmission and how it spreads. Uh, with the common cold, again, like I said, you typically recover from it and you don't necessarily have significant debility from it. So that's a, that's a word meaning you don't have significant effect on your body as a whole mm. from it. Mm-hmm. But this particular virus, the, the COVID-19, I would use that, uh, that term to refer to the virus, we're seeing that some select patients have significant debility from the virus. They can get pretty sick to the point where they're critically ill and actually end up on a ventilator, meaning their lungs are failing. Mm. So that's usually concerning when a virus can do that. And especially when we still don't have a cure per se. So with the Mm -hmm. flu, if you get the flu, technically there is a cure. So we know some drugs that do work Mm. for the flu. For COVID-19, we're still experimenting on potential therapies that help you recover, but there is no cure as such. So there's so much in terms of the difference, but the big thing I would say is, We've always dealt with a common cold. We know it's not highly infectious. We know it doesn't necessarily cause significant debility, meaning you're going to be significantly ill to the point of being critically ill. Mm-hmm. And so we are not as keen on saying, you know, social distance and, you know, make sure if you have this virus, you need to be seen by a physician. We don't, you know, give you those mm-hmm. Uh, cautions, but with COVID-19, your antenna goes up when somebody has it because Mm -hmm. it potentially could be fatal, potentially, depending on the individual. So is there treatment? Because you're saying people are kind of experimenting with, because usually it's like if you have it, then go home. (laughs) So is there anything that's happening with treating it? So, like I said, there is no cure for the coronavirus, the COVID-19, as it stands. Uh, However, there are therapies that we use right now to help patients, to help decrease the disease burden. So, to help the patients recover uh, as soon as possible. Uh, There are things that we've done. So, if, if, if the patient is not symptomatic to where they are, hypoxic, which is the, the, their oxygen levels in the body starts to fall to where they're not having or, or to where they have a fever and uh, basically develop worsening disease in the body, we typically don't treat. Mm. Because just like every other common cold, every other virus that affects the upper respiratory system, you can recover. Mm. So we can watch you. And it can take up to 10 days to see recovery. However, if you start having fever and if you start having severe symptoms such as cough, and if you start seeing that you're having shortness of breath, difficulty walking, and your oxygen levels start to drop, that's a concern. And you typically would be admitted in the hospital. And if you're in the hospital, there are therapies that we have used in the hospital setting to help you recover. Steroids is one of them. Mm -hmm. We use steroids very often to deal with 
uh, acute illnesses in the hospital setting. It's shown some benefit in patients with COVID-19. There's also a newer drug called remdesivir. It's, it's, uh, it's an IV medication that attacks the virus and has shown some benefit also in an inpatient setting. Mm -hmm. Uh, there are other experimental therapies that are being used in certain hospitals, but as far as we know thus far, there is no quote-unquote cure mm -hmm. for the virus. Mm -hmm. But we have therapies that have shown significant benefit. So I, um, one of my sons had trouble breathing when he was younger. He got RSV, and we dealt with that for a, a number of years. And so... Mm -hmm. Similar to what you were saying, they would treat him with steroid, and then I would give him, um, uh, we would use the nebulizer. And so a few months ago, we were hearing that regular steroids and things like albuterol and things were not helping with people um, that were having the shortness of breath and everything. Have you s seen that to be true, or what do you think about that? So let me preface by saying I don't treat COVID-19 patients in the hospital. So it's not my responsibility mm -hmm. as a physician. I deal with gastrointestinal illnesses, so the digestive oh, yeah. system. However, you know, I have training in internal medicine and I do read up on the current therapies for COVID-19 and I'm up to date on the research. And that's why my opinion uh, is worthwhile sharing. I just want to preface for your audience. Mm -hmm. uh, so, Mm -hmm. Th that's a good thing that you said. So again, you know, we talked about how we have so far just a year's worth of information on the virus. And that's why you've mm -hmm. heard a lot of contradiction with the experts. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, when it comes to data, you have data coming in ever so frequently. So what I mean by data, we see what people are doing in Australia, what people are doing in the UK. But by a three-month period of time, you might say, oh, based on that data, I don't see that the steroids were helping. And so we're going to say we don't recommend it. And then mm -hmm. you keep getting data. Oh, look at what they're doing in New Zealand. Oh, look at this hospital system in Chicago and in California. Look, at they've, they've done X, Y, Z over the six-month period of time. Now we're seeing that steroid is actually helping. We thought it didn't help, but more data is coming and it's proven that, no, it might be helpful. And so that's what happens in the medical community. Uh, over time, we learn more with more data, mm -hmm. with improved research methods. And so there was a talk early on about avoiding steroids in the therapy for COVID-19. At this time, we've had data that's shown pretty significant benefits. And so it's one of the... Uh, recommended therapies in an inpatient setting. Uh, so the, the idea is you, when you have the COVID-19 illness, and especially when you are affected in your system and you have significant critical illness, the virus can cause inflammation in the body, meaning it can cause a significant reaction in the body Steroids is an anti-inflammatory mechanism. So steroids really just try to target the body's inflammatory mechanisms and fight against that. Mm -hmm. And so it's a way you can try to calm down inflammation in the body. And typically you can see improvement in a patient. And so it's always been theorized to be a potential therapy 
for COVID, understanding the way COVID works. And now we're actually seeing real outcomes uh, with improvements in patients uh, on steroids. But, you know, to say all that, again, it's a case-by-case basis as to how a patient Mm -hmm. would respond to therapy when it comes to COVID-19. Some patients don't do well on therapies that I've mentioned. We still have critical patients who eventually die from the illness. And so, you know, it's, it's one of those things where, again, we don't necessarily have a cure for the illness. And it's so fatal uh, to where we're trying our best as the medical community to promote understanding how the virus can be contracted, to promote preventive measures where we can actually explain to the population that it's much better to be prevented from having the illness than to be in a position where we have to talk about treating the illness. But then again, again, it depends on the patient profile. You know, we've, we've started seeing that select patients with comorbid illnesses or the elderly, uh, they have a higher chance than the general population of having fatal outcomes from a COVID-19 illness. And so that's why it's very important uh, to really make sure that as a community, we're, we're taking care of the elderly, we're taking care of those who are at risk of possibly having bad outcomes if they do come down with this illness.